very pleasant and blessed morning, isn't it, that we've each been allowed to assemble in the way that we are. It truly is good to see each and every one gather today that things with you and with me are as well as they are. I would add one additional reminder among those things announced a little bit earlier this morning. Uh, please, if you would, remember that lectureship at the Tennessee Bible College is coming Saturday. That's uh, six days from today. Uh, I'll be speaking at 9 o'clock that morning, and the entire theme of that lectureship surrounds things which no man can destroy. So I'll have one particular topic, and other speakers that day will address other topics. But certainly, if you can at all, come and be with us. It'll be out at the, uh, at, the, at the actual TBC campus, which is there at the Northeast Church of Christ building. And we'd be honored to have you. And certainly, if you're not able to be with us, remember, if you would in your prayers, that all that day shall proceed exactly in the way that would be right. The lesson this morning, as you may have noted, has the title you can see on the wall behind me. A title that takes us to a rather interesting discussion, having to do, of course, with marriage. And we understand well how thorough and how common that topic is. And yet, in some ways, the Word of God is not always as pursued or at least as considered as it might be. For that reason, these introductory comments, I hope, will set us on a course of consideration that will lead through the remainder of the topic of our discussion this morning. I believe we would each say that different cultures around the world and different particular nationalities are really quite different. The customs and the particulars in which things are done are rather distinct. In Europe, you drive on the left-hand side of the road in many places. In other parts of the world, the foods that are eaten are quite different than America. Not only that, the particular customs of greeting, for instance, can be rather distinct. But couldn't we all be rather amazed that every society on earth recognizes the entity we call marriage. Doesn't matter where you go, Australia, China, Canada, here in the, in the North American continent, there's an understanding that this particular way of surviving and living is something that everybody seems to understand. I would at least offer each of us the recognition that given that kind of matter, that it occurs everywhere in a very common and, and similar way, should remind us that there's one behind it greater than man. If men were behind it, you would think it would differ from one nationality to the next. Things would be rather distinct about it. And yet, the fact it's the same everywhere, doesn't it remind us? One of the things we'll develop in some detail in a moment that this is worthy of consideration because it comes from God. You'll note about the middle of that slide then. The Word of God lifts marriage to a very commendable station. Proverbs 18.22 says that, Indeed, a prudent wife is of the Lord. Proverbs 19.14 And as I noted in that earlier chapter, it's a reminder to all of us that the man that finds a wife has found a good thing. Maybe it is in that kind of connection. We'll close that slide like this. This basic entity that we call marriage is something that really is vital to understand for the happiness of the human family, not only here, but hereafter. And therefore, we're going to devote some attention to this, this particular morning to a reflection on what is God's design of it. What about the great designer and what He has affirmed? With all that said, this next slide will then proceed like this. Let's give some careful attention to the origin of this wonderful estate that we call marriage. 
How did it originate? Under what circumstances and in what way? Kind of fascinating, isn't it? As God surveyed the majesty of His creation, one thing and only one was not good. You and I recall that throughout those days, the creation of light on day one, the characteristic of the firmament on day two, the seas being gathered together on day three with the consequence of the dry land appearing, the stars and the sun, and all of those matters on day number four. Day five brought us the life in the seas as well as in the air. Finally, we come to day six and find the creation of the land animals and even man. But we notice out of all of that, and let's face it, there were lots of particulars and lots of specifics, and all of it was good, with the exception of one thing. Genesis 2 verse 18 reminds us, it's not good that the man is alone. God, as you see, saw in that which he had done. Have you ever stopped to wonder, then why didn't he just make Eve, the woman for the man, at the same time he made the man? Why did he allow some element in time to pass? in which time it was then brought to an additional recognition, something isn't good. Don't you believe that this is for the emphasis of what was about to take place? The appreciation of the origin of woman and that which was to take place with God in His sovereignty reigning over their marriage. On that slide, I've asked you to note like this. You might recall that the animal kingdom had its mates, there was the male and the female. Recall on day number five, God expressly told the life in the air and the life in the seas, you be fruitful and multiply. That demanded both of the sexes in light of them. Something similar on day number six with respect to the land-dwelling animals. But yet man didn't have a helpmate at that time. And yet we find that God performed the first surgery. Deep sleep came upon Adam. A rib removed from his side was used to fashion a woman. And God brought her to the man. In verse 23, Adam himself made observation, This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then we notice God joining in that discussion when He says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Genesis 2.24 No wonder in light of those observations, you'll note about the middle of that slide, that as we now find, a family had been generated. The man and his wife were a family. Husband and wife they were. The fascinating consideration leads us then to notice God established it. It was not the idea of men... It was not the consensus of some number of scholars. It was the idea of God. He set it forth in every particular and identified the circumstances prevailing relative to it. Maybe to say that slightly differently, which is the last way it's presented on the slide. Does it this then mean that the God of heaven has the exclusive right to determine and to dictate and to declare relative to the station of marriage? In essence, he has the information by which it should be done. It is with that in mind. He is able to determine what marriage is to be like, who is allowed to enter it, and who is not. 
All of those ideas, of course, are things that the Bible will develop in many ways in the pages after Genesis chapter 2. At this point, though, let's turn our slide and proceed to note the following. Because having at least noted somewhat of the origin of marriage, what about the features the Word of God specifies concerning it? As we just noted, God hasn't left men to decide what they prefer with, with, with respect to marriage. He hasn't left it to man to say what he would like. What man likes is irrelevant. It's immaterial in terms of what's ultimately right or wrong. And so on this slide, we'll perhaps briefly note several of these features, all of which the Bible will encourage in our thinking. Surely we might begin like this. Marriage is a covenant. It is not merely a trivial agreement in which a couple of people enter standing before justice of the peace. It is not merely this fly-by-night arrangement in which a couple of people make some statements before the local sheriff. The Bible calls it a covenant. Malachi chapter 3. In Malachi chapter 2 verse 14. In that particular verse, the prophet Malachi highlighting, remember God speaking through him, the incredible reality that here marriage is called a covenant. It is a rather solemn agreement involving God, the man, and the woman. There are three parties involved in marriage, not just two. That kind of agreement takes us back to the thought then that who is the one legislating? Who is the one asserting the terms of the agreement? Well, God's the one asserting the terms. The man and the woman are agreeing to them. Maybe it is in that connection that following statement is thus to be observed. Who does it involve? As far as the earthly parties, it's a man and a woman. We all understand that the human family has attempted to make some changes in this point in about the last 15 to 20 years. Prior to that, to my knowledge, there wasn't a community on earth that thought that marriage involved anything other than a man and a woman. But now, many nations on earth have asserted there's an equality concerning same-sex unions, that these have equal status to marriage. Well, what man may say is an alternate arrangement, God says, is immorality. And that's never going to change. But with that in mind, how did the Lord answer this point? When the Pharisees asked the Master about this matter in Matthew 19, and it's echoed, of course, in both Mark and Luke, but when they asked about this, the first comment out of the Master's mouth was, Have ye not read? Now the Lord quoted from Genesis chapter 2, and may I suggest that that should solidify in our thinking a remarkable truth. You might be aware of the fact that our Supreme Court justices and by the way, this was not Justice Roberts. This was, in fact, one of those others in June of 2015 who wrote the majority opinion when they legalized same-sex marriage. But that justice, he made the statement that marriage is fluid, that marriage has changed over the years. He should have bitten his tongue. Consider with me matters about time. How much time elapsed between Genesis chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 19? You and I can figure that out based on the genealogies of the book of Genesis and the information succeeding it. It was somewhat over 4,000 years. Jesus said in 4,000 years it hasn't changed. When they asked Him about the characteristic of marriage, He said, Have you, Haven't you read? It's right there. 
marriage hadn't changed. We are now 2,000 years beyond that, and it still hasn't changed. It has never changed. Our Supreme Court justices were wrong, absolutely and blatantly wrong. You see, the only one that can change marriage is the God of heaven. He designed it. He originated it. He orchestrated it. And unless He changes it, it cannot change. It is with that in mind, Jesus said, haven't you read? No wonder then, the next statement is this. The pattern that God set forth at the beginning, and the one that Jesus reiterated, was it was one woman for one man for life. That was the impression, that was the intent, that was the issue that God embedded within it. In fact, you and I notice in the New Testament on several occasions when that idea is reiterated. For right now, we've at least seen what brings us to the middle of our slide. And it's the following. You and I well recall that men have often had differing ideas. So could a man have a couple of wives? Could he have, say, a half dozen or more? Some in the Old Testament tried it. But may we never, ever forget that Jesus said from the very beginning it was never so. That was never the intent. It was never God's plan, and it never turned out good. It always led to problems within the family, and we can understand that. And it led to rivalry and strife between the children. We can understand that. And it led to great issues, sometimes national and thrust. And we can understand that. But all of that reminds us God's idea was best all along. About two-thirds of the way through that slide, marriage involves a hierarchy. It still is the case that the head of the woman is the man. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. That wasn't written in the days of the Old Testament. It was embedded as a part of the orchestration and the features of the family. And therefore, the husband is the head of the wife. That's no insult to her. That is no great commendation otherwise to him. It's simply a statement of the way God intends it to be. That's the way it's best. The next feature is this one. Marriage involves leaving and cleaving. We all understand as human beings that we surely have connections in life to our parents, to others in various assortments of life. But the fact is, and you might keep this in mind, haven't you always thought it intriguing that when God made the statement, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, Adam didn't have any earthly parents. God had fashioned and made him. He didn't have a daddy and a mama. And yet, it was embedded in what God affirmed then and forevermore. The husband's got to leave mother and dad. That doesn't mean you ignore them or neglect them. It means your chief concern, your priority in terms of earthly matters, is this woman you've married. For that reason, you and I appreciate in that, leaving and cleaving, that's a part that, of course, will be stated again, even in the New Testament as well. Marriage is a permanent ar arrangement. We noted earlier that one woman for one man for life. We know that because Romans 7 verse 2 states that truth. Isn't it there reminded of us that a woman, as long as the husband lives, she's, she is in fact subject to him. That law remains in force. But when the husband dies, she's free from that law. And then 
she may acceptably and appropriately marry another. Now that's stated again in 1 Corinthians 7, but isn't it true that our world has long ago abandoned that idea? Perhaps you've heard about or read about or we're all aware of divorce on demand. Isn't it commonplace? A century ago, there was divorce, but at that time, you had to at least give the justice of the peace. You had to give the official a reason for the divorce. She's done this or he's done that. Today, you and I, persons can go into a, with the services of an attorney and get a divorce for no reason whatsoever. You don't even have to give one. I just want a divorce. That shows how much we care about marriage in this country. For about $125, you can get a divorce. Isn't that sad? We care about animals more than that. We care about things that are quite insignificant far more than that. And that, that's the place we've come. God never intended marriage to be like that. At the bottom of that slide, then, perhaps this is to be noted. It's incredibly vital that not only do we understand things that God has taught about marriage, not only do we live them so that children and grandchildren and others can witness those truths in our lives, but we need to make sure we help to instill in their thinking these things so that when they come to that point in life, when they're ready to contemplate marriage, they'll know what it involves and they'll have an understanding of what's entailed in it. So far, this description about the features of marriage bring us to answer this one. So given all of this, there are many in our society who have reached the following conclusion. Why do I need to get married? Are you aware of the fact that the divorce rates have actually decreased over the last 10 to 12 years? Now at first, that sounds wonderful. The divorce rate's going down, but here's the reason why. People are just living together without being married. That's what's happening. Those rates have gone up tremendously. So it would be a good question to ask, why should I get married? What benefit is there in it? We've just highlighted some of the features connected to it. I've tried to summarize some of them on this slide. Let's look at some of them again with brevity. First of all, Let's go back to that origination. Why did God create the woman? It wasn't good for the man to be alone. There is something about the companionship that a husband and his wife are able to share and to enjoy. There's something about the closeness and the love that they exhibit and feel and share. There's something about the degree to which they, as a fortified union, one flesh, not twain anymore, one, that kind of strength will allow them to withstand all the evil onslaughts the world is able to throw at them. It is a closeness that is quite amazing. But not only that. There is something to be said, of course, in that beautiful arrangement of husband and wife that allows the sexual needs of life to be addressed. The fulfillment of those kinds of desires of, of, of the flesh. Might we take note, any other attempted satisfaction of those desires is sinful. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 2. That makes one a fornicator. And therefore, this is the one environment in which there's blessedness connected to that idea. 
What about thirdly? In addition to those, isn't it fair to say, this is the arrangement. May I say again, the arrangement in which there is the perfect place for the rearing of children. An environment in which they can appreciate the love and appreciation of a father as well as a mother. There are things they will offer that no other place in all society will offer them. Daycare doesn't bring it. Other kinds of arrangements in life don't offer it. But with the love of a husband and a wife directed toward those children, fathers bring up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Ephesians 6 verse 4. Women, as mothers, are told to love their husbands and love their children. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. That kind of situation then reminds us, here's the place where a child can grow in such a way to be a productive citizen here and be ready to be a productive citizen hereafter. And that brings me to the next point. Maybe this one's easy to overlook. May I suggest to you, in the confines of a family as God has described it, one finds the environment that prepares the mind to be ready to obey the gospel. May I say that again? In the confines of that kind of a family, a youngster is able to grow in such a way that he or she is acquainted with and ready to be a servant to the Master of all. How is that so, or how is it that that develops? I've tried to summarize some of them. In a home like what we've described, a child is able to see the sacrificial love of a husband and wife. Not a love based on convenience, not a love based on money, but a love that is self-sacrificing, and a love, you see, that goes beyond the realms of mere physical things. As a child appreciates that, can that child not learn to appreciate the sacrificial love of a God, of Christ? But not only that. What about the issue of the idea of sacrifice? Now, some children, I suppose, in our world grow up with parents who never sacrifice anything for them because the parents are selfish. But when you appreciate that the Bible doesn't teach along that line, but that would help prepare a child with that selflessness to ponder a selflessness of God and a selflessness of Christ. What's more, can it be noted about the issue of commitment? That dad and mom stuck it through no matter what. Even when hard times came, they didn't divorce. Even when challenging times arose, they didn't give up. And God won't give up on me. And Jesus doesn't give up on me either. There's obedience for those parents that, again, are as they should be, will encourage a child and demand of that child, you obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Ephesians 6, verses 1 and 2. And so the child learns about love and commitment and obedience and sacrifice. And when that child reaches the age of, of accountability and learns that God is committed, that he or she must also be committed to God, and that God expects and demands obedience, that that child is ready to say, I'd like to become a Christian. And so in so many ways, a healthy family will be a strong part in the thinking of a child to prepare them to become a member of the body of Christ. May I suggest then that this is one of the key reasons why God's laws on marriage are so strict. 
It's because it has to do with the ongoing blessedness connected with those that would become Christians. The next part of our study this morning, we'll develop some of that by inviting a commentary, at least some extended comments on perhaps the most well-known passage touching this subject, Matthew chapter 19. We've already talked about some of it, and I'll just mention some of the remainder in passing. But we each remember that the Pharisees in Matthew 19.3 came to Jesus. There were many times they came to ask questions of the Master. At first sight, that sounds wonderful. Why not go to Jesus and ask Him questions, but we're quickly told the whole purpose they wanted to tempt Him. They, it seems, really weren't interested in what He had to say. They really didn't want to know the truth. They just wanted to try and say something that would cause Him to be discredited in the eyes of the audience. That didn't seem to deter the Master. He heard their question, and then He gave them the answer. As we've already noted, their question was this, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Now may I say, that question could have been asked on the courthouse steps yesterday. That's how timely it is. And they were asking it 2,000 years ago. Is divorce okay? Can a man put away his wife just for any reason? Well, the Lord proceeded to answer. And as He did that, again, He said, Have it you read. And He took them back to the scene of Genesis 2. This is the way God originated marriage, and this is the consideration that He desires it to have. As you can see on that slide, that merely takes us to the next thing the Master said. Jesus said in verse number 6, as he pointed out the nature of what God had joined together, let not man put asunder. You see, they ask about divorce, and is it something that's done for just any reason? The Lord pointed out the fact of the case. Let not man put it asunder. Now later, Paul, of course, would describe in more detail those features in 1 Corinthians 7. But at least for now, Jesus has already no doubt caused them an element in, in, in great struggle. That's not what they, I'm sure, wanted Him to say. After all, isn't it true that in the human family, most of us like to do what we want to do. I don't want to have the bonds and shackles connected with what someone else tells me to do. And so, can I put away this woman and get me another one? What if I just tire of it? What if I just don't want to even be married anymore? What if it's not my intent to remarry? I'll just divorce this one and stay single. Well, you'll notice the Lord said, Let not man put asunder. Once you've entered this union, there's no going back. You should appreciate before entering it the nature of what it involves and what God's description of it is. As the Lord went on to say this, You'll notice it on that slide. The Pharisees asked Jesus a secondary question. Well, if what you're saying is true, why did Moses allow him to divorce? Jesus quickly replied, It was because of the hardness of their hearts, but from the very beginning it was not so. That was not the design of marriage. That was not God's intent for it. It was not heaven's will that it be that way. In essence, in that Old Testament regime... God had a toleration of it because of the hardness of your hearts. And with that as a background, he then arrives at verse number 9, in which the Lord Himself said, 
I say now unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and marrieth another, committeth adultery. And whoso that marrieth her, which is put away, doth commit adultery. Now, as the Lord made that statement, He thus has taught, notice, I say to you, this is what the will of heaven is. And in essence, God called the human family back to the arrangement as God had designed it from the very beginning. And that is His will for this era. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, perhaps a few quick observations. He begins it with whosoever. There are times when you will hear some folks say, well, God's marriage law applies to Christians. It doesn't apply to those outside the church. That's not right. Jesus said whosoever. He didn't say whosoever is a Christian. He didn't say whosoever is a member of the church. He said whosoever. This applies to folks whether they're Christians or not. You're not free just to throw out your wife or your husband and go seek another one. It is not a matter like this. Not only that, the Lord quickly makes this statement, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication. There's only one biblical presentation, only one statement from the God of heaven about that which would permit a divorce followed by an acceptable remarriage. It's when there's fornication involved. Sexual unfaithfulness, sexual infidelity, in that instance, then, the one that's not guilty of this can divorce the other one. And that one that was not the guilty one does, by God, have the privilege of remarriage. That kind of statement was perceived by those who heard it in a very challenging way. I might invite you to note the verses that followed it. When the apostles who heard this, they replied, Lord, if it be thus with a man, it's better not to marry. You see, they were under the illusion that marriage is a bit, less, it's a bit, it's a bit more flexible than this. That you can simply put away and acquire another wife. And so the apostles said, Lord, if that's the way it is, perhaps better not to marry. May I suggest Jesus didn't correct their thinking. In other words, it's a mindful thing today that we should understand first the blessedness of marriage and when approached, as God has described it, oh, how wonderful and how tremendous. But all that does suggest and require that we think of it in the way that God does. Our society is so perverted in many ways when it comes to the thought of marriage. Enter it freely, get out of it freely for just any old reason or perhaps no reason at all. And treat one another however you want in the marriage. And you may have noticed somewhat recently, following that Supreme Court decision of June of 2015, there have been a number of perhaps other developments since that appear to be moving in the direction to broaden the definition of marriage again. It's ugly. It's sinful. It, in fact, troubles the mind, and yet that's the place our nation seems to be headed. As you and I close that slide, perhaps one final statement on this slide, and the lesson will be yours today. As we've looked at some of the features so far, simply allowing the Lord to speak on this matter, and we know that He's right. Jesus is always right. He does all things well. Jesus there said, Any person... 
who divorces his or her mate for some cause other than fornication and enters into another marriage is not only guilty of adultery, but the person that the individual marries is guilty of adultery. You and I realize adultery, of course, is a sin. Even in the Old Testament, one of the Ten Commandments had said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Exodus 20, verse 14. And we recall in the New Testament so many occasions on which various descriptions were given of those that will not enter heaven. And fornicators heads the list. Galatians 5, verse 19. Revelation 22, verse 15. And so adultery is serious. You may have noticed then that Jesus pointed out that to enter in a marriage in which you're not eligible to marry leads you to be guilty of adultery. Oh, how we must not only be aware of these truths, but ensure that we teach the next generation of them so that God's Word can shine so brightly in this world that's so dark on this subject. In closing that slide, it takes us back to the lesson text that Greg read earlier. Jeremiah chapter 3 presents a rather challenging description in many ways. Marriage is often mentioned, but it's not the kind of marriage you and I might initially have thought about. God says, I'm the husband, and Israel, you're my bride. I was faithful to you, but you weren't faithful to me. You went after other lovers, and so they would worship the gods of Egypt, or they'd worship the gods of Moab, and God says, I was faithful to you but you weren't faithful to me. Doesn't that remind us that if God uses marriage as a way for us to understand His connection to Israel and the idea of faithfulness that was to be in it, doesn't that remind us of how special marriage can be and how He intended it to be? As we close this lesson this morning, it takes us to this last slide, a conclusion slide. This slide merely highlights in a rather applicable way some of the things we have noted this morning. Having to do with the fact that marriage is foundational. You'll notice it occurred in chapter 2 of the Bible early on. Not only did it occur so early on, it served as a foundation for many of the matters touching authority for all the chapters thereafter. And so, for example, you notice that it is foundational among many of the teachings of the Bible. It's foundational among the social well-being of people. Not only men, but women, and therefore of communities, of nations. Today, as you and I can be so thankful for God's teaching on a subject like this one, doesn't it in fact in many ways allow us to see how different the dark and perverted ways of men can be from the blessed shining light of God's truth. No, marriage is always going to be special because God talks about it. And what we need is a citizenry that appreciates what God has said. And that will begin with us highlighting it and living according to it and helping others to see the same. Today, whatever a subject that could be in your life, it may not be particular to this one, but perhaps there's something of which you're aware that you've done and continue to do that's not pleasing to God. Don't act in arrogance and think that somehow because no one else knows it that it's okay. God knows it and that's enough. Won't you come rushing to His side today? We're going to stand in just a moment and sing this hymn of encouragement. It's a time of encouragement. 
a time to let us know that God's always calling the prodigal. Today, as you and I perhaps have become prodigal and wasteful in light of our life in the Lord, why don't you come back to your first love? We'd be happy to help and to assist. If you've never become a Christian, today, today would be a wonderful day for that to happen too. Right now, the Lord's invitation is extended while together we stand and while we sing.